Hey everybody, thanks for listening, and as always, thanks to our sponsor, KnowledgeBand, the leader in human performance improvement training and technologies. If you want the most advanced safety technology adapted from the human performance principles of the nuclear and aviation industries, then KnowledgeBand is error reduction that works. They were the first company to tie human performance to serious injury and fatality or SIF precursors. Learn more at knowledgevine.com. In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Today, my guest on the show is Keith Stelter. Keith is the Chief Strategy Officer for American Safety. Thanks for coming on the show today, Keith. Thanks for having me on. And I'm really happy to be joined by uh, Wally Suarez, who is in charge of all our rescues, one of our technical managers. And he's going to be the real interesting one on this conversation today. His job's pretty unique, and I'm looking forward to being able to be a part of the conversation to introduce him here. Wally, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do? My name is Wally Suarez. I am the Technical Rescue Manager and Staff Development Coordinator for American Safety Services. I wear a lot of hats in the company. I do a lot of sales. I do a lot of training, operations, all the safety side of it. And plus, I do all the technical rescue, all the high angle rope rescue, horizontal, vertical, you name it, we do it. And you're a lot more than that, aren't you? Part of the Sheriff's Association and a few other things. And you've got a pretty unique yes, background, sir. don't you? Yes, sir. I spent 17 years in correctional law enforcement, went all the way up to the rank of major with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I worked in about 17 different prisons within my career, federal, state, private, everything, maximum security to very high security, some death row guys. I have a very extensive background in that. I did a lot of training. I did a training in defensive tactics, firearms, edge weapons, ground control, just literally anything I could put under my belt. I went forward and achieved it. Do you ever, I don't know, I'm stealing this Russell show, but now I'm curious. Uh, do you ever do <laughs> any riots or any crazy stuff like you see some of the movies or what? Do you got a quick yeah, that was, share? Yeah, there was several, actually. The prisons that I worked at, uh, especially some in down south Texas and especially in Abilene, that was pretty common to have racial riots, to have a gang-related violence. Um, and one specifically, I remember where we literally, the inmates just kind of told me during lunchtime, it was like, man, I hope you brought your running shoes today and kind of give me the heads up. And I was just like, man, we're ready. We're ready. I mean, it's going to happen. There's really nothing we can do to control it, especially on a facility that's got 4,000 inmates and you maybe had 63 to 65 officers on shift. So of course you have some officers that are in control centers. They can't respond. They can't do nothing. Then you have the guys outside, they're patrolling the perimeter, so they can't respond inside and you're limited to what you got. And it just kind of kicked off and Officers just call it over the radio, like we have a 1034 on the rec yard and get all staff to respond. And of course, you have to start isolating inmates that you do have out in your areas in order to get them to not kick anything off in their area since they see people running from everywhere. So everyone's got to work together to try to isolate where they are and get everybody locked into cells and holding cages or whatever they got out there and then take off running. And I was actually on the far east side of the facility and had to run all the way to the west side of the facility to respond. So when I got to the middle crash gate, I just told the guy, give me the party pack. And the party pack was basically a duffel bag that had nothing but grenades and projectiles and 37 millimeter grenade launcher and took off running with it. And 
I felt like I was Rambo running through the hallways trying to get to the rec yard. And when I got there, it was just everyone's yelling for them to lay down. And I'm yelling at the officer in the tower to throw grenades. So he's dropping grenades from the top. I'm starting to shoot off projectiles from the end. Wait a minute. What kind of grenades are these? There's CS gas, so it's like a pepper spray, but it's inside of a grenade, and it just disperses an excessive amount of smoke that just kind of makes them shut your eyes and starts making your snot come out and everything. Oh, my goodness. It kind of impedes your breathing a little bit. (laughs) All right. So you got to keep your cool, man. So I guess rescue training now is a perfect transition. Your uh, party pack probably has changed a little bit here, but when you got to go. party pack is in a trailer now. (laughs) Yeah, it's in a trailer. How long have you been doing these rescues for? Well, for American safety, I've been doing it for two years in general, pretty much all my life. I mean, since I was 18 years old and joined the the prison system, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you do is literally rescue because when there's inmates that have been stabbed or officers that have been assaulted in the line of duty, you have to go in there and get them. Technically, it is kind of like a rescue, you know what I mean? Because you're still going in there. You're still having to pick somebody up or drag them out. Same thing we would do just when you're wearing gas masks, just like you would and anything else, just like we do out here in the field with respiratory protection, wearing our SDBAs. But of course, in there, you're wearing a gas mask, so you're not wearing anything like a backpack, but you're still having to watch your surroundings. You're still having to know that there is smoke and stuff in the environment, so you can't just breathe fresh air. You got to get the guy out as quickly as possible. And coming into the oil field industry, I didn't even know that there was rescue until I actually ended up running up a catwalk to grab a gentleman when I was doing some flow back work independently in New Mexico. We were hit with H2, well, he was hit with H2S, and he went down on top of a catwalk. There was no respiratory protection, no H2S detection equipment didn't really know much about the safety side of things. We were just kind of out there just working old school style work. You know, everybody's just in jeans and boots and getting levels off tanks and stuff like that. And I went up there because the guy wasn't responding to his text messages. We had a group text. We were texting in our levels every hour on the hour. And it had been the second hour had gone through. I didn't see him get out of his truck and we were getting out simultaneously and the guy was not responding. So I told the company, man, I would go out there and go check on him and drove my truck over to the tank battery and Checked his truck, opened the doors, and nobody was in the truck, but it was idling, so I figured he was good. And I looked up to the catwalk, and sure enough, I just see his boots laying there. So I just took off up there, not realizing what the environment could have had out there or what the levels of any toxic fumes or gases was. And I just picked him up, put him over my shoulder, and brought him back down the stairs and called 911 immediately and started doing CPR. And I mean, unfortunately, the individual never made it. But after that, the company, man, whenever we got investigated, and they had a lot of people there, a lot of people from his corporation showed up and started asking a lot of questions and just basically everyone was kind of really thankful that I had the courage to get up there and go get him. And then they just said, man, you should do rescue. And I was like, man, it sounds like definitely in my ballpark. And I didn't even know it existed, but they say you have to go into the safety side of things in order to do it. So I went from that point right there. That well, how was immediately we, we hear lots of stories that when somebody goes down like that, it's just a chain reaction that the next guy goes in, he falls down then somebody else rushes in there. How did you dodge the bullet of not getting hit with the same gas that guy did? Honestly, I think my law enforcement training probably kicked in. I mean, at the moment, it's kind of spontaneous reaction, you know, just kind of, it just kicks in. The stuff that I've been trained for in years in law enforcement, just immediately when grenades go off, especially if you're the one, there were several situations in the prison where I was stuck in a situation where it was the inmates and I was stuck in there by myself or with another officer and I'm asking for assistance. So they're the ones shooting gas while we're in there and no masks. So, you just kind of learn to hold your breath and just keep blinking is what I got told in the prison system. You know, keep blinking your eyes and that way you don't lose your vision because that stuff burns. But as long as you can tear up and you can get your eyes to just keep blinking, you can keep a visual on what's going on. So I guess I just when I went up there, I mean, I did smell it. I didn't know what it was. Of course, I wasn't trained in none of that at the time. It was not really 
no safety culture out there whatsoever. And I just went up there. Really? And, wow. That's Yeah. As soon as it smelled bad. How long ago was that? This was about, I want to say about six years now. Wow. No big H2S training. Yes, sir. That shouldn't happen. It was just one of those issues where, like I said, I didn't even think about nothing. I just thought about my law enforcement training and held my breath, went up there, grabbed the guy, threw him on my shoulder and just tried to do the best I could to get him out of the containment, get out of the area. And then at least laid him on some flat ground where I can start doing CPR and check for pulse and was trying my best to get him out. But we were so far out, they had to call the helicopter out there. And when they got there, of course, you know, they had already determined that he was a seat at the time I got him. So he'd probably been up there for the whole hour before the break where we realized that he hadn't been responding to the messages. Wow. Go ahead, Russell. Sorry, we interrupted you. No, 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 that's fine. In fact, I was uh, I was going to tell everybody, Keith, you're your own podcaster extraordinaire. Tell us where you are and tell us about American safety and tell us about your podcast. And then we'll get back to Wally and get some more rescue stories. So I was a wireline guy for many years, uh, worked Slumberjay Weatherford predominantly, worked overseas, all over Canada, and then COVID hit and everybody was laid off. You had negative oil and kind of took to LinkedIn to try and make my own opportunity. And for whatever reason, the stuff I was posting, little videos, I would tell kind of stories like we're telling now of things you know I did in the past and wireline, little problems, issues that came across and how I solved them just to demonstrate that something that you can't actually just put on a resume, a little, little bit of that. And for whatever reason, it turned into a little show. It's called Tally Book Troubleshooting. I've you know, been asked to interview people at all kinds of stuff. The biggest one coming up is the Permian Basin International Oil Show. And it's translated, you know, I was an operations guy for forever and it's kind of turned me over into sales and introductions and people reach out from all kinds of different industries now. I just got back from Las Vegas at the PAC Expo, a lot of manufacturers out there and renewable energy conference. So it's been great to open some doors and work with people. Like I work with the Oil and Gas Workers Association. I'm the president of the Permian out here and we have a big luncheon coming up September 26th where uh, we'll have guys like Shad Fraser come and talk and there's a nice little bit of way to get in the door a few places and learn things you wouldn't normally get the chance to learn which I'm sure you have found out doing your show here Russell so once again thank you for having us on and American Safety I've joined with them just here recently full lineup of safety training rescue like what Wally's covering we also have a production division. We have service rigs and kill trucks and back trucks. And we have a little bit of an environmental division too, where we'll go clean up oil spills or saltwater disposal. We have an in-house professional geologist as well. who will write up the reports for the railroad commission, that kind of thing. So it's a pretty diverse outfit. Fire extinguisher inspections, a little bit of product sales. We're uh, getting into a little bit more outside the oil and gas industry. So, Well, I was going to ask you about that. Are you primarily oil and gas? Yes, sir. I think we're the largest oil and gas safety company, at least in the Permian. We have offices at Artesia, New Mexico and DESA. So not too many people have two large offices like that. We have over 300 employees and the biggest division is definitely the safety division. By so far. what kind of safety do you provide? What kind of safety services do you provide? Yeah. So on the safety side of things, we basically do training. We do all kinds of oil field training from H2S to confined space, hot work, forklift, man lift training. We do all that in the training center. But then when we get to the field, our safety technicians are basically trained from entry level positions all the way up to being consultants, HSEs, 
rescue course is part of the training that they're going to get into that as well. But we do everything from confined space work, atmospheric testing for any kind of levels of gases, tank cleanouts, and you name it, it's very diverse out here. But we're, we're rarely just out there supervising, keeping people safe. We make sure everybody's got the proper PP on. We do all the permits. We do all the hazard assessments on locations. So all of our guys are trained to be the safety professional on location, to be the safety supervisor basically out there. Okay, so you act as the safety supervisor for the rig out there or at a uh, facility? or uh, It's multiple. We do everything, production, completions, right, you name it. It's right. whatever they need. We can supply it. Yes, sir. But so you're the rescue guy. Yes, sir. So how often does that come up? Daily. Daily? Really? Yeah, that's a lot of rescue jobs. So my team is in the field literally every single day. There's days where we've had eight rescue jobs at a time. There's days where we've literally had the roster completely full. I've sold everything from 10-man rescue jobs to 20-man rescue jobs where it's literally one job, 20 people, and they're all rescue trained and certified. And we're just doing really big projects, gas plant shutdowns, midstream, stuff like that. So That's fascinating. I had no idea. So you say you've got 10 people out there as rescue people. So what are they doing? I mean, every job scope is different. I mean, sometimes we've been up on 130-foot A-mine towers on the gas plants, and they're actually going to go into the actual manway and they start removing trays. And so we got to set up our equipment all the way up there, 130 feet up, and being able to lower somebody down the event something happens when they get into that confined space. Okay, so you're doing preventative. Is You're setting yes, up. Sir. Yeah, we're there just like as a standby just in case something does happen. I mean, we have been called out for emergency rescue type stuff where people are stuck in confined space areas or there's other companies that are just basically maybe not have the retrieval equipment. So they just call a stop work and say, I need you guys out here like ASAP to get this job going. So we've done that on several occasions, but we mostly just get out there. We pre-stage our equipment. We kind of analyze the entryway, what's going to be the exit point, muster points, wind socks, things of that nature. So we know the wind direction, the event, the gas hits hard. And we just have the respiratory protection for everybody. We make sure everybody's fit tested, everybody's training, confined space. We check everybody's training before we even allow them to enter. And then basically what we do is once they start the job, we continue with atmospheric monitoring, just making sure they're good. Keep them, you know, if it's hot, we bring them out every 20 minutes, you know, give them some water, let them get some fresh air. And then we bring them back in and just whatever we got to do to complete the project in a safe and efficient manner. Wow, that's very interesting. I don't think most of us realize the extent how all, all that goes on on a particular project or on a particular job. So you have any advice? What's the top three things you see that gets people in trouble? I would say their lack of knowledge in the OSHA standards is one of the biggest reasons that people get hurt. They don't know the laws of respiratory protection. They may not know the laws of lockout, tagout. They may not know just the standard PPE. They're not trained and qualified, probably just the lack of knowledge and training. And then a lot of it has to do with the old school mentality that people don't like working when safety is around. So they just want to kind of cowboy it up and run and gun through the process and not realizing that they may be pressure on the line or they didn't actually de-energize the equipment, the isolation of tanks before someone goes in there. You know, there's a lot of OSHA laws that we actually test our techs on to make sure that they're knowledgeable in those standards. So that way we are the step above the rest of the competition. You know, our guys, that's the only way that they promote and get raises on our company is they have to take seven tests that are OSHA related every three months in order to get to the level three, which is the highest level of achievement for a field tech. And they have to know the knowledge. They have to know the knowledge and they have to be able to enforce that knowledge in the field to keep people safe. So I would say the top three is lack of knowledge, lack of training, and just the old school mentality of just running, gunning to get the job done without being safe. That third thing you talked about, I think you called it cowboy mentality. Yes, sir. 
you still see a lot of that. I'm surprised. I thought maybe we had turned the corner on that, but you see a lot of that still, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not every day, but I mean, there's certain companies that will go out there and do some stuff for and they just I don't think they've ever seen a rescue team or a safety company like American Safety where everyone's wearing red shirts. We're all uniformed up. Everybody looks professional. Shirts tucked in, clean shaven. It just looks professional. And then when they get out there and someone tries to do something unsafe, immediately call the stop work and say, look, per 1910-147, lockout, tagout, we need to make sure that all this stuff is done first. And then we're going to go ahead and check all this stuff, walk the line, make sure everything's got locks and tags on it. That's our people. You know what I mean? So whenever it comes to confined space, the same thing. Like if the tank's not isolated, like my guys will call stop work and say, well, first of all, let's make sure we check everyone's training first. Let's make sure they're fit tested, what they're fit tested for. Let's make sure that all the training is up to date and accurate. And then also to say, like, look, man, this tank ain't isolated. So what options do we have in order to keep it from any fumes or liquids or anything going back into that tank whenever we open up this manway? So we are that company that does that. Sometimes it does ruffle some feathers at times, but there's a lot of customers that we do work for that are very, very appreciative of that about us. You know what I mean? Because they give us a lot of positive feedback that we catch a lot of good things out there that can prevent major accidents or even incidents from occurring because of our proactive approach at making sure that all that stuff is checked on before we even allow the job to start. Yeah, that's very critical. What were you going to say, Keith? I was going to ask Wally, I know he's short for time here on this episode, but you shared a story where you rescued or attempted to rescue somebody who was probably already deceased. Do you got a story where you guys went up, didn't look good, but you were able to bring them back? Well, we had a situation on a tank clean out job, and I can't really say the customers that we were working for, but we were actually doing a tank clean out and it was hot. The weather, it was pretty hot and they were doing some pressure washing inside the tank and just noticed how from the beginning of the job, the sound of the spray and the gun, because I really can't see anything in there because it's dark. And then plus the mist and everything is coming out completely. But I'm still standing at the manway, just kind of listening, just noticing how as it was starting to slow down a little bit, I asked the gentleman if he was okay. He gave me a thumbs up. I asked him to come out and get some water. He refused. Told him, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go ahead and pause the job for a second and let's communicate real quick. Let's get on the same page. Called him out, told him like, okay, it's hot out here and it's hot in there and you're hitting this with hot water. So it's even hotter inside. Just so I know you're sweating profusely under your suit. Let's get you some water. The guy was like, I don't need no water. So, well, then you're going to get some fresh air. Just said, you know what, man, I need beer more than water. And I was like, that's the wrong answer. That's not how we do things. I can't force the man to drink water, but we had water available had everybody else drinking water and trying to keep everybody hydrated and out of the sun as much as possible. Gentleman went back inside as we were proceeding with the job. And I guess as he was going maybe 15, 20 minutes into it, he just started feeling, I guess he was feeling faint. I guess the dehydration started kind of kicking in. I can tell just the level of the nozzle was not being squeezed as hard as it was before. Looked inside again, asked him if he was okay. I can just tell like he didn't even have the energy to turn around and respond. So immediately I masked up, said, you know, rescue one's going in possible man down. And of course, everybody at that point gets in their positions, our equipment's ready to go. Went in there, grabbed the gentleman, put some fresh air over his head, turned on the escape pack. So he's got cold, fresh air going into his breathing system and was able to get him out safely. And when we got him out there, we just had to put him inside of a pickup truck, turn on the AC low just to kind of get his body to start temperature, start cooling down. I don't want to turn it on high or nothing like that, just to kind of push a bunch of cold air right away. But we started taking his clothing off little by little and Kind of getting him in. He was very pale. Started giving him water, gave him an electrolyte pack. One of the other was he a lot more cooperative then. Like once he figured out he was in trouble. Yeah, once he because at that point it becomes reportable. Once I have to go in there and get you, like that becomes a reportable incident, regardless whether there's injury or no injury. 
And of course, we already had documented on the confined space permit when he came out the first time, individuals refusing to drink water. Like, you know, it is when we documented the temperature was 104 degrees outside. It was 111 inside the tank. We documented all that stuff as, of course, we're going to protect ourselves at the end of the day. So once that happened, we called his supervisor. And of course, I was the supervisor on location, so I didn't really have to notify anybody, but just start taking my notes for my investigation, my report. After a while, when their HSC showed up from the other company and their little safety guy, and it was like, man, why are you working in these conditions? And the guy was like, man, I thought I can muscle through it. It's like, I've done these things hundreds of times. And I said, man, it just takes that one time to to cause the injury, the fatality. It's like, so that's why I was telling you that you need to stay hydrated, you need to drink water. Like you're sweating profusely under that suit. You're using hot water. It's hot outside. And just trying to educate these guys who have that old school mentality of I've done this a hundred times to let them know that it just takes that one time. So we're here to prevent that one time from happening. We want to keep you safe and we want to do it the right way. So after it was all said and done, he was very grateful. You know, he shook my hand. He appreciated it. He apologized for being hardheaded during the beginning of the shift and everything. But he realized, you know, at that point, I wasn't going to allow him to go back into work. You know what I mean? I told him, you're done for the day. You're not going back in the tank. I'm using stop work authority at this point. We can regroup and start again tomorrow with somebody else, but you're not going back in the tank. And his company had to support it because I'm the certified professional out there. So I'm the one who makes the call. So I just decided that I wasn't going to let that gentleman go back inside. Well, there you go, folks. Good lesson learned. Don't be hard headed. (laughs) And it does only take that one time. So Wally, we appreciate this. You are uh, pressed for time. You got to get to, uh, I guess, set up a rescue situation or something. Uh, Yes, sir. I have an actual teams meeting for an upcoming really big rescue job. So every time I do that, I meet with a customer and we talk about the job scope and I let them know exactly how we're going to stage this up. We're going to meet on location. I can take pictures, pre-plan the whole rescue so that my my crew is set up for success rather than failure and with no equipment to take. And we're ready to rock and roll whenever the job gets scheduled. That's great. Okay. Well, again, thanks, Wally. Thanks, Keith. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks out there to everybody who's listening. As always, we enjoy it when you give us good reviews on iTunes or Spotify, or there's simply the review link that's listed in the show notes. Please tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn, your other social media. Also, folks, if you find this podcast beneficial, then make sure you help keep us up and running by reaching out to our sponsor, Knowledge Vine. Their website link and other contact information is on the show notes. You can always contact me on LinkedIn, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.